Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think there are about 80 of us. And we said that we'd all had an illegal abortion. Come and arrest us. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. My guest today was once a nominee for Australia's Top 100 Public Intellectuals. She's an author, teacher and an outspoken advocate for equal opportunity for all. She also wrote a sex advice column for Clio. So welcome to Short Black, Wendy McCarthy. Thanks, Sandra. Pleased to be here. Wendy, I feel that your journey's really been one of serendipity, opportunity, risk-taking, and through it all, a wonderful sense of self and humour. You never said no, you challenged at every turn, and refused to take the path you were given. When do you think you realise you really were a born leader? I really don't know, but I think probably when I was three, because my father was called up to kindergarten, unbelievably, for a woman of my age. My parents sent me to kindergarten at the age of three. It was a funny little church hall in Orange in New South Wales, and they introduced a kindergarten program, and my mother thought that I would flourish there. So I was duly taken, and I loved it. And after about four weeks there, the principal said that my father had to come up to the school to be, have a discussion about me. And my mother was petrified. My mother was 18 when I was born, so she's a 21-year-old and she's being called up to discuss her child. She just assumed I'd been naughty. So when my parents came, the principal said, we're having a serious problem with Wendy. She refuses to be right-handed. She just keeps on being left-handed. And my father, I'm told, just looked at her incredulously and he said, don't bother trying to change it, just leave it. And she said, oh, it's a serious disability. Because it was then, you know, listed as a disability. They used to tie people's hands behind their back so they'd learn to write with the right hand. He said, no, it won't make any difference. She is to be left-handed. That's all there is to it. And left-handed I was. And I think to myself, that's probably the first time I ever stood up for myself in life. But it worked. Growing up in a regional community, going to a one-teacher school had a profound effect on you, didn't it? Yes, yes. There's no doubt that it did. And the the school I went to, the one teacher school, was my third school um, at the age of eight. And I was there for four years. And I was mostly the only one in my class. So I'm very fond of saying, you know, that I always came first until I didn't when I got to high school. But it was a very, you know, there were 24 children in the school, four classes. And I mostly read listened to ABC, you know, teacher of the air school and looked after the little ones. And you know what? That's what my life's like. (laughs) And when I left the school, I applied for a bursary to go to the local high school and I didn't get the bursary. And everyone said, that's extraordinary. Wendy's such a clever girl, how she could not have got the bursary. They'd basically forgotten to teach me maths, but I was very literate. Anyway, I had to catch up on the maths a bit later. But even then, when you went to a high school, pretty unusual, 
you had to board at a local hostel to get through it. Yes, yes. Did you find it tough? Five would have been quite lonely. Um, well, the, the St John's Hostel I went to when I started secondary school was adjacent to the high school and it had 28 children, 14 boys and 14 girls, girls upstairs, boys downstairs, and a resident Anglican priest whom we all adored. So I was there four years. The hardest thing, I think, was leaving that what became a very safe place. And I loved it from the minute I got there because I'd never done team things. You know, I was the eldest child. My next sibling was four years younger and the one after that was another four years. So I, I, you know, I'd never played a team game, for example. All of those things suddenly opened up to me. So I was a very happy little schoolgirl there in the local high school. It was the last year when my family's fortunes were well and truly down and they moved to Warrialda and I had to board with a family I'd never met before in Tamworth. That was hard because they had three little boys. Fortunately, they were just wonderful people and it turned out to be happy. But I was really more or less completely on my own with them. So in a funny way, I left home at 11 and, you know, I then went to university for four years, so I never really went home to live again. These days for young women, the world really is their oyster. They have unlimited opportunities and choice, which is wonderful. But when we look at the 1960s, only about 3% of women at the time actually had the opportunity or were able to go to university. So how did it come about for you? Well, if I hadn't had teachers who explained to my parents or my mother, because my father never turned up at schools, and explained to me that if there was an opportunity to go to university, I would probably never have been there. Nobody in my family had been. And when they said she was going to do arts, one of my aunts said, but she can't draw. <laughs> and I, it's, it's the sweetest thing, isn't it, and the most poignant thing to think that in one generation, my mother's other children, two out of four got university degrees, and my children all have got master's degrees. So, you know, there's an incremental thing about learning, which is wonderful. But those teachers got my parents up. My father did turn up when the signing was done. And he said, I won't sign a scholarship form as a guarantor if anything goes wrong. But one of my aunts agreed to do that. My father was very against the government. And the aunt signed it. And she would never have been able to pay it if I defaulted. But anyway, she just thought, don't worry, they'll never get me. It was a contract of sorts though, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yes. The contract gave you five years, at four years at university, so an arts degree and a diploma of education, a postgrad training, and you then had to offer five years of service to the Department of Education and they could send you wherever they wanted to. However, if you got married, as a woman, if you got married after three years, you could waive your bond. Now, at the time, I thought this was fabulous. But of course, when I reflect years later, men couldn't have their bond waived. And what that really meant is girls had a teaching job and men had teaching careers. And so it was. So I got married exactly three years, which is when most women got married, if they were going to get married and break their bond. And I didn't have to pay back a cent. And I went, you know, happily off on a boat to England, as many young people did at those times. It's been such a constant thread throughout for you, discovering that you've been offered a job, but a career was never actually on the table. Correct. But the interesting thing is I thought I'd go nursing because I knew a friend of my mother's who was a nurse and I thought she was fabulous. She used to tell me endless stories about it. But I was too young to go nursing. Um, I was 16 when I went to university and the, they wouldn't take you 
in training at Prince Alfred where I would have gone until you were 17. So my parents said you can go to university and then you can go nursing at the end of the year. But they would never have let me go to Sydney to university or to nurse. They said, no, you'd have to train locally. Well, by the first year of university, I was so in love with university that, you know, nursing just took a back seat. But I've always been interested in health. You fell in love, you got married and you had your first baby. And that was when the activism started for you. On a personal level, you decided things really needed to change. That's right. I did. I think when you become a parent, there's, there's a moment through the pregnancy, I think, that you realise suddenly you have the responsibility coming up of another life and you want everything to be the best. And this, I was living in the, U, the US when I got pregnant and, and I was planning, trying to be pregnant. And I'd lived in London where there were different ways of having babies to anything I'd ever heard. I'd never heard of anyone having a baby at home before, for example, and that that being part of the state system. And in America, women were doing babies differently. How so? Well, they were having, you know, lights and mirrors and husbands at birth and all this stuff. And I was reading books about pregnancy and I thought, and Gordon thought, we want to be together when we have this baby. So I went looking for an obstetrician who would agree to that. And there were a few. Anyway, the one we chose said, yes, he was very happy to have Gordon at the birth. But the hospitals weren't happy about it. So he said to me, join this organisation. I think you could be a joiner. And he gave me the address of the Childbirth Education Association. So it became new territory and they were committed to having opportunities in hospital for parents to be together at the birth of their children. They were also promoting psychoprophylaxis, which was a way of birthing where you didn't use drugs, you used breathing. Not yoga, but a particular form of breathing. It was based on a French methodology. You could take drug, get drugs if you wanted them, but your aim was to get through by breathing. I do birth breathing at the dentist, you know, like 52 years later. <laughs> so what was it like having a baby in Australia in the 60s? The first obstetrician I talked to, I only spoke to two, the first one I spoke to said to me, oh, you know, it's very nice to have you here. He said, you know, I'm very pleased to be able to help you. Before I had a chance to say anything about I might want what I might want, he said, you know, I'm very experienced. And uh, he said, I just say to my girls, just lie back and, you know, I'll help you get have the baby. And I thought, I've done a lot of reading on this. And I, I used to talk to women who'd had babies in London, my friends, and I, think, I don't think it's like that. I said, well, I really want my husband here. He said, oh, that's not a good idea. He said, the men just faint. And I thought, okay, you're a bloke, so why don't you faint? I didn't say that to him, but I thought it's a sort of arrogance, you know, that when you become a husband as opposed to a medical professional, you can't deal with it. Pathetic. Anyway, so I thought, oh, well, I just paid for the appointment and thought I won't be back to you. And so the other guy I went to said, you know, if Gordon's going to be part of it, he, he, it's best that he goes to a couple of birthing things. Well, there weren't many places to go, but there were physios who did the teaching then of childbirth. And you know, I found a wonderful childbirth teacher. and. I think we were very well prepared for babies. And during that time, interestingly, Channel 10 broadcast the first live birth from our group on television. Really? We were, six of us were lined up and it just depended which time we came into labour. And it was a a woman called Jenny Burton and uh, she had, it was called Don't Cry Baby. And it was the most exquisite filming of a live birth. I was quite disappointed in the end that it wasn't me because... (laughs) 
The reason it was a news event was because in those days a pregnant woman was bundled off to hospital with just a nurse and a doctor and you weren't allowed anyone else. We changed the rules and because every time they told us about a rule, we'd say why. And then you'd begin to understand the public laws. I had my three babies at King George V. It was streamlined. You know, I had an obstetrician who supported me and a husband and all of the people coming through from childbirth education. We were choosing the obstetricians who would enable us to have greater choice. And, you know, the meter ticks and suddenly obstetricians were seeing they were on a bit of a blacklist not getting as many women anymore because they were seen as old-fashioned, they were seen as not giving women choice, and also it was about the health of the baby. Fewer drugs, healthier babies, and healthier mothers and fewer caesareans because there were very few caesareans in those days. Five years later, when I decided to have a tubal ligation, I'm on a trolley down the corridor and the anaesthetist said to me, Gordon hasn't signed the forms for you to have this. And I said, well, they're not his tubes, they're mine. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. He said, he needs to sign it. No woman has ever had her tubes tied in King George V without her husband's signature. And I said, well, then I'll be the first. <laughs> and my obstetrician came along and he said, just what my father said when I was three, there's no point in arguing with her. I'm happy about it. You give the anaesthetic and I'll do the job. And of course, another five years, I'm back there as a family planning educator. There were women with disabilities, there were women who were single, had their tubes tied with no one giving consent. See, if you just hang around long enough, you understand the lies. And why would they do it? To take away someone's fertility without, you know, to say that you have to have a man. It's like the bank manager who said to me, you know, can your father sign a bank loan if you want a car? And I said, no, he's dead. And he said, have you got any brothers? Yes. One. Oh, well, that's good. He can sign it. And I said, well, he's 12. I don't think so. You know, Wendy, it was 60 years ago that all this happened. It seems like a long time ago, but it really isn't, is it? No, it's not. It wasn't that long ago that women were subjugated to such misogyny and double standards. Yeah, and such, such a lack of space to thrive and learn. For you to thrive, having a child made you realise that women really weren't getting a fair go from the outset. I think that's true. And I think the other thing, though, that's a part of that is we didn't know we were entitled to one. So we had to address those issues with other women and we had to find language because the one thing I wasn't about to concede is that I was a victim. And when you use words like women are disadvantaged or women are discriminated against, many people read into those words that they were lesser or that they were victims. My mother hated those words. She didn't like me being a feminist very much either, but she did as well. And she could see that there were opportunities that came out of it. But I think that it's the sense that you can be in charge of your own destiny and you only need to have love and affection and an opportunity for learning. And if you have the right partner, I mean, Gordon always had my back. There's plenty of room to move. And we collectively, there's no doubt when we did the Women's Electoral Lobby survey and the ridiculous responses that politicians gave us about where women fit in Australian society. It was so laughable that that was where a lot of the energy came from to change the system. So that's when you really got political, wasn't it? When you set up the Women's Electoral Lobby, yeah. what sort of things did the group achieve? Well, it started off as the first project of the group. It was built around 
putting a questionnaire to every politician in Australia running for office in 1972. And the questionnaire was based on an American New York magazine questionnaire, which Gloria Steinem and other women had put together. And we decided that we would mobilise to do that because we could see that our images, our voices, our aspirations and our dreams were not being reflected in Parliament. A group of us started here in Sydney, but the first group was in Melbourne. Beatrice Faust came up and sold the idea to half a dozen of us, and three of us took on the responsibility of getting it set up in New South Wales. It grew like a virus, Sandra. It was so amazing. It must have been an exciting time. It was so exciting, but it was practical and pragmatic. So many of us, you know, believed in the in women's liberation theories and so on, but most of the, the women's electoral lobby people I'd call reformists rather than revolutionaries. We didn't think we had time to wait for the revolution. We thought we could fix the system. And we did fix a lot of the system. And of course, when we then, it became a very interesting project for media to follow. And when we put the results out to the media and they read things like, you know, my favourite still is in Benelong when the local member, not John Howard, before John Howard, responded to the question of, you know, what's a woman's greatest attribute? He said her virginity. I mean, we're talking 1972 and we're not in, you know, the Eastern world. Her virginity. Now, we should add, this is an era of no preschools, no maternity leave, restricted, and I mean restricted, access to the pill. That's right. What did you have to do if you wanted to get the pill in those days? You could get the pill in Australia at... Um, from 69 or 60, no, 62, but you had to, it, it wasn't, if your doctor didn't like it, he didn't offer it and you didn't get it, you had to have a script. It was on the medical system. So most people didn't get it to start with, but by popular demand they did and then doctors started to realise there's a flow of money as well as a flow of control and, I mean, Catholics missed out on it. So they were much bigger users of family planning services, which is fascinating. (laughs) And Australia became, per capita, one of the great takers of oral contraceptives. Amazing. So you could get from a family planning clinic, but it was quite expensive. The most interesting thing in the first three months of the Whitlam government is Gough Whitlam took the cosmetics tax off the pill. Cosmetics had a tax on them. God knows why. And so the pill had the same tax as lipstick. It was about 30%. And it was one of the first things he did. It was a symbolic thing about letting women be free and making to make their own choices around their fertility. It was a wonderful thing to do. It's a, it's a beautiful speech, his first speech in Parliament on um, women's rights and oral contraceptives and taking, them, taking the tax off the pill. But it, it was very, very hard to get if you weren't married. Wow. But taking the politics out of the times, Wendy, in the Whitlam era, when he introduced free education, those symbolic gestures really galvanised the women's movement and created the vision and reality that the world was yours. You really could chase your dreams. I think that's true. And I don't think there's any leadership in Australia since that has come near to capturing the mood and aspirations for change and better lives than the Whitlam government. No matter what went wrong, nothing quite got that in the same way. So, for example, with education, one of the first things he did was to set up a task force on girls' school 
and society about education. It basically rewrote the rules about access to education. It introduced the idea of women being able to go to university without having finished school based on desire and life work to date. And I, I still meet women who say, like one did last week at the beach, every morning I wake up and I just remember to say, thank you, Goff, for a life where I went to university at 35, got to be a teacher, got to be a company director and a whole lot of other things. And I had to fight my family to do it. But in the end, they too say, thank you, Goff. And I, I remember when I was a chancellor at the university, one person I graduated, you know, I handed her test aimer to. You know, she was in the, in the 70s and she'd been to university and, she, and I said, why did you do it? She said, because I could. I just say thank you to a government that did that. You know, when I was teaching in TAFE, there were young pregnant schoolgirls there. They could come back and have a chance. They could go to a TAFE and places. It made an extraordinary movement. There's no doubt in my head that education is the greatest legacy of that, the second women's movement, which is my one after the suffragettes. Let's take it back a bit. You'd been overseas with your husband teaching and when you came back, you then hit another brick wall. I know it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, every time I talk about it, I think how crazy it was. So, well, I've had two years teaching in London and a year in Pittsburgh. So I was a six-year experienced teacher. I went to the clerk at the Department of Education about two weeks after I got back to Australia and said, you know, I'd like to go to work. And he said, well, it's very difficult. He said, you know, you'd have to start as a first year graduate. And I said, why's that? And he said, well, every year you leave our service, you deduct a year. And I said, but I've been continuously teaching. He said, but we can't count that. And I said, well, they could. They gave me the status of having worked in New South Wales for three years. And he said, of course. And I thought the blinding hubris of that. And then foolishly, I said, anyway, I said, look, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to be, you know, in a short-term thing because I am newly pregnant. He just looked at me and said, well, that changes everything. He said, you certainly can't join full-time the service because you wouldn't work after you're a mother. I said, I would. And he said, no, I don't think so. And he said, so you can be a supply teacher. So a supply teacher meant that they called you when they wanted you. Well, fortunately, the first call I got was for a four-month appointment. So I I did, in fact, have a really beautiful time at Mossman High teaching there until Sophie was born. Obviously, the same rules didn't apply to young male teachers who were about to become parents too. No, and there was no, I mean, first of all, I was being paid less than people, you know, I was much more experienced than. Secondly, the day I left, that was it. If I came back, I'd have to start again at the beginning. And all promotion in New South Wales education until relatively recently was about seniority, not skill. You could just sit in the system and get moved up unless you were really terrible and you got moved out. And that was unusual. There were a lot of things that we had to change. And I adored teaching. But I realised after, you know, I did bits and pieces. I stayed home essentially for eight years from full-time work. I had a six-month contract and then a four-month contract. But that was the time of women's electoral lobby and community activism. So I was busy and having fun and so on. But when I tried to get back into the full-time system, I really was getting, you know, as my 30s and I was getting old to get back in. It was just about impossible. And I've, I just remember one day driving home from TAFE where I'd been working for a few months and crying my eyes out because I thought I hadn't got a job there I'd applied for. Everyone told me what a great teacher I was and I didn't get the job and some 21-year-old boy got it. 
And I thought, that's it. I'm not going to do that anymore. I have to find something else to do. And it was quite a haul, quite a way before I got what, the next job. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. I got involved in family planning as a women's electoral lobby person and as a childbirth education person. And I went along to a meeting and there was a group, the Humanist Society, wanting to take over family planning because they thought they were not responsive to single women and they were too conservative. So I went as a sort of, I went as a pregnant person really on the ticket to show that we weren't anti-pregnancy. And to everyone's surprise, the whole ticket got in. So suddenly I was on the board of family planning. I remember coming home and telling Gordon that, and he said, do you know what your responsibilities are? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, did you put the house on the market as well? <laughs> but within two days, it was put into administration. So it was a short career, but to no penalty to the McCarthy brand new house. <laughs> And then I eventually I applied for a job and they couldn't find an education person. They made me leave the board when it was reconstituted and I got the job. That was wonderful and it was political and it was exciting, but, you know, it was all, all the stuff I'd learnt in well, my community-based skills and, and, you know, the resident action movement around McMahon's Point and so on. It was the most wonderful job and I was, I think, there for three years and then I took on the national leadership job and I was there for five years. So I had eight years in family planning. It was a great place to be. From there, it also introduced you to Canberra and the public service, didn't it? And a circle of women who were influential and working behind the scenes at Real Reform. Yep, that's right. It was wonderful. And I met, you know, I started meeting them in International Women's Year in 1975. That was the end of the, you know, the Whitlam era, really. But the government was really supporting women. You know, they sent people to Mexico to the first international conference. It was the first international women's year. And the Australian government was very active at a world level So, and, and very active in our region. You know, we had strong relationships with women in Fiji, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand. New Zealand were very strong. And, of course, their women were very powerful in many ways ahead of Australia. And I think that was an exciting time. And then in 1978... In the Fraser government, I joined the first women's National Women's Advisory Council, and that was very strong Canberra base. And I learned probably most of the things I knew about Canberra then. And strangely, Sandra, recently I talked to Bob Ellicott, who was the Minister for Women at the time, or Home Affairs, which included women, Home Affairs, mind you. Anyway, I said to him, We never ever knew how you chose us. What happened? And we went through the list of the first 12 women. There were 12 women. They weren't representatives of anything. They were chosen as 
as individuals to provide. That's this is a very liberal way of doing it. The Labor Party would do it through unions and other places, you know, as representatives. So you'd have to go back and talk to your group. They didn't do it that way. And I said to Bob, so how did I get there? And he said, well, we couldn't have had a National Women's Advisory Council without someone from Women's Electoral Lobby, or we would have been laughed at because the Women's Electoral Lobby was the most important group in Australia at that time for government to listen to. And it was so nice to hear. Anyway, you know, it was just a, a really interesting few years working with 11 other, you know, disparate women and really basically roaming around Australia talking to people. And, you know, as well as that, I had the job in national family planning. So that set me up with great contacts, you know. So they must have been really heady days, finding this group of strong-minded, powerful women who you shared an intellectual rigour with and who were committed to effecting real change for other women. Yes, and we were led by an extraordinary woman, Dame Beryl Beaurepair. I was thinking of her this morning because Dame Vera Lynn died today. Beryl just personified the women in the services. She was the daughter of shoemakers, and her parents uh, were Lord Mayors, as she was a Lord Mayors, Lady Marius later on. But she wanted to go to university and she wasn't allowed to. She wanted to run the factory because there were no boys in the family and she wasn't allowed to. They'd rather sell it than let a girl run it. She strongly believed in women's education and she joined the Women's Air Force during the war and became a major, did work in meteorology. She didn't finish a meteorology degree, but she became very competent in it. And she, all, she spent the rest of her life making sure that women in the services got access to the pensions and housing and loans and education that the men got because otherwise they just were, you know, thrown out of the thing and told to go home again and have babies and make bread or something. She had a philosophy, if you want to change things, you go straight to the top and put your case. Don't worry about the bottom because if you're well informed and you've got a good case, the grassroots are with you anyway. It's the soundest advice. You often encourage young women to say yes to every opportunity and worry about the risks later. I learned to say yes to opportunity and I learned to support myself in doing it. And when I do say to young women, say yes first, because if someone thinks you can do it, you probably can. No one comes along capriciously and says, I want you to be an advisor to government on education or women's affairs if they don't think you can. I also say when you, someone asks you something and you say yes to opportunity, you don't do it in matters of sex. You reflect on that. Because in family planning and Cleo, when people would write to me and say, you know, do you think I should have sex because this boy says he loves me? I'd say, no, just wait a while, think about it, or go to family planning first. And that's that sort of nice connection between the heart and the brain. You need your head and your heart connected to make those decisions. The other ones are professional of a different kind, but you go through the same process. So for 10 years you wrote that advice column. Any funny recollections, memories, the most ridiculous questions you were asked? (laughs) Oh, look, I have fond memories of being invited to the Seahorse Club, which was a club for transvestites, and meeting wonderful people there. And, you know, the scales come off your eyes when you meet different people and you learn we're basically all the same, just pursuing things in a different way. I still meet people because I always, I insisted on having the column in my name. 
I thought I have to be able to defend what I say and I'm not going to be some unknown person. And I'd written a column also for the Sunday Mirror for six months, a couple of years before, and I did the same thing. I think there are a couple of times, you know, there was people wrote to me who they wanted to shoot a film star and I rang the police. It was a woman, two women, who were absolutely in love with this star and they were planning because he was taking no notice of them to do something violent. So there were sort of strange things that happened like that. Uh, I definitely saved some lives of people in advanced pregnancy who couldn't have the baby or whatever. It was actually a really enriching period. I got some letters out that I'd kept a few weeks ago and looked at them and thought, would I still say the same thing? Would I still give the same advice? And do you know what? I would. That was a really interesting thing. So hang on, I don't understand the segue then from sex columnist for Clio to an illustrious, and that's an understatement, illustrious board and public service career, Chancellor of the University of Sydney, Chair of Symphony Australia, McGrath Estate Agents Board, CEO Family Planning, General Manager of the Australian Bicentennial Authority, Deputy Chair of the ABC, National Trust of Australia, Star City, Olympic Urban Design Panel, the list goes on and on. (laughs) So how do you jump from A to Z almost effortlessly? Did you decide you wanted a board career? In a sense, my first, my professional career was teaching. And when I couldn't do that in the way that I'd had thought I would be doing it because, you know, still in my dream cupboard at 78, I still would quite like to have been a principal of a girls' school. But anyway, that's not going to happen, but, you know, I just have it up there to remind me. But I couldn't do any of those things because the system just didn't permit it for the circumstances that I was in, you know, to be a mother of three children and so on. It just wasn't possible to be the sort of wife, mother I want to be and the teacher I want to be. And I thought that was just completely unjust and unfair. And if I couldn't do it, I wasn't going to whinge about it. I was going to find something else to do, but I was going to change the system. So I went on the march for equality for women and seniority and, you know, not not just seniority for promotion, et cetera, et cetera. And I can see those results. But when when it came to the ABC, I was invited to the ABC just after I'd left National Women's Advisory Council. That was a big appointment. And some years later, again, a bit like talking about Bob Ellicott, I said to John Button, who rang me to ask me if I'd consider doing it, I said, yes. And I got off the phone. I said to Gordon, John Button asked me if I want to go to the board of the ABC, so it's probably one of our friends joking. Next day I got a phone, you know, phone call from the head of communications saying, would I be happy to be the chair of the ABC? And I said, sure. I just backed myself. I'd done a lot of work with media as a community-based person. And I said to Martin, what was it? He said, well, we want to change. He said, clearly you were capable of changing things. And we needed people who were to change. The ABC had to change. We wanted people who were brave enough to do that. And your name just kept coming up. So that's what we did. What sort of change do you think you made? Oh, profound changes. So, for example, no woman had read the news, 1985. Margaret Throsby had filled in twice, but we did have no women newsreaders. Well, I thank you on behalf of the sisterhood. That's good. I still get a thrill when I see you reading the news. I do. I had no idea you were responsible for that until just now. I really didn't. Wow. (laughs) 
So Jane, um, Jane Marsh was on the board and Veronica Brady, there were three women on the board of the ABC and we caucused and said, these are the things we want. We want to hear women's voices on the ABC. That means they have to read the news. They have to be authoritative. People argued endlessly with me that a woman's voice was not authoritative. Too high, I know. They argued in the early days women speak too highly and they can't be taken seriously. That's right. How ridiculous. And then there was no, um, I wanted people at the ABC to have childcare available to them because they worked strange hours and it was really hard. And childcare has been a continuing issue throughout my life. Uh, having access, you know, in the Senior Officers Association, I think there are about 60 members and there were two women. So the chance for women to get into senior management was really limited. And the entry of women to the ABC was capricious too. Many of the best and most famous women in the ABC came in as personal assistants, even if they had a degree, because they didn't get the cadetships and other things that the blokes got. That's how I started. It wasn't quite the same way, but that's how I started. Yes, yes. And, you know, you rise, talent rises, but not always because you may not be in circumstances where people permit it. And if if you're not taken in the same way, it was difficult. And I remember we opened it up within a year. But, you know, we changed the way, well, we we changed the systems, we changed the buildings. We had 28 ABC buildings in Sydney when I went there and we got it down to two. We managed the orchestras out of the ABC and that probably, I think that was the right thing to do. It was really sad for ABC Music Department, but it was the right thing to do. It was meant to be, you know, a broadcaster. Or the orchestras have all flourished, belonging to their own capital cities. When you look back and consider what you've done, I mean, it wasn't your area of expertise, but you could read a room and knew that if something didn't make sense, it needed to change. Well, I believe that organisations should look like the community they represent. I was a strong representative of Australian female community, I'd say the Australian community, and in subtext that, women. And I thought that it was reasonable for me to be able to express my view at the table about what women wanted. I was well informed about that. I'd been a consumer, I'd travelled and so on. And I think community input to those organisations is very important. I never felt out of my depth. It sounds arrogant to say it. But, and also, I'm a reader and a hard worker. And the ABC is everybody's business. That's how it should be. Fair point. Did you ever take a job then and realise maybe you shouldn't have? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I can make good my mistakes, but it was probably a mistake to take on being the CEO of a law firm. I liked the people. I did it after I left the National Trust and I wanted to do a job where people could see that I could be a commercial manager as well as a public sector manager. But I knew when I moved in within a couple of weeks that it was probably not my wisest decision. And managing a partnership is really hard. And there were 34 partners and 12 of them were in Melbourne. And they basically wanted me to refinance them, rehouse them, break up their partnership and get the best out of them. And I did all of those things. And it was, you know, in 10 months later, I said to them, guys, I I don't need to stay here any longer. You need someone else now to, that's as much change as anyone can, any company can cope with in a year. You'll be fine now. You just need someone else in the role who's not going to press the change button every day. And, you know, they flourished. And it was quite a happy time, but it wasn't fulfilling for me because I don't know whether I thought, you know, in my head there was going to be Perry Mason there or someone. But 
Judge Judy, but it wasn't like that. I was going to say our audience have probably never heard of Perry Mason, but probably Judge Judy. (laughs) So another area you have been really active in is that of reproductive rights, so much so that you shocked your own mother. Yes, a group of us decided because of the police activism against abortion places that we would put our names and and abortion was on the criminal code it had been for 85 years then and this was in the 70s so we took a page of the nation review i think there are about 80 of us and we said that we'd all had an illegal abortion come and arrest us and of course nobody came and arrested us ASIO recorded it i discovered from my file So we thought, okay, well, we'll just proceed on the basis that they're not going to. And my mother, who I didn't know, read the nation. She was furious and she said, you know, you put your whole family at risk. I hadn't actually thought about that. I said, well, you know, it should not be like this. And we have to call the police bluff on this. And it was a significant turning point because if they weren't going to arrest us, they had no reason to be arresting women who were not as well off as us. And yet most states had legalised abortion except New South Wales. And even up to last year, there you were at the front of the picket lines challenging the government to fix New South Wales. It was good though, wasn't it? 50 years later, it happened. Probably my finest achievement, really. And, you know, we'd been planning that campaign for two years. I never doubted that we'd win when everyone else was panicking. I just thought, no, this is going to happen now. It's time. It almost couldn't not happen, and yet there were so many young women last year who really didn't know that it was illegal. No, no, I know. Since 1973, we'd had a common law agreement, and people thought that that meant it was legal. But we'd seen signs. You, if, you, if you read the tea leaves, as I do, about these issues, you could see what was happening in, in the U.S., you know, with Trump and the closing of clinics. And I thought, we have to get on the front foot here. And we also knew of two cases, one in Queensland and one in New South Wales, where women had been charged with a felony. And I thought, this is this is just absolutely unacceptable. It is just gobsmacking, but look, so much has moved on. Thank God. <laughs> exactly. You moved on from the board world and set up a mentoring business, which you sold to your daughter and she now runs. Why do women need mentors and what makes a good one? Well, I think the, the biggest outcome for mentees is for someone to find her or his voice. A great mentoring relationship. The mentor helps the person to hear the voice and reflect on what they're really saying. So you have to listen. You have to learn to listen. It's a time out to talk about your dreams and your aspirations and how you can't manage things in particular jobs, how you don't get recognition, whatever your issues are. But it is about finding your voice because once you find your voice and you get confident about how to use it, you're right then for life. You know, I, I still get the most exquisite joy out of seeing people I've mentored succeed. And I think you, you just helped someone be the kind of person they wanted to be. Wendy McCarthy, I could talk to you all day and I really wish I had all day. I can't. On behalf of the sisterhood, thank you enough for everything that you do. You continue to give back nearly 80 and still at the front of the picket lines championing the cause for those who can't because you just want a fair go for all. It's all about finding your voice and for us today it's about hearing yours. Thank you so much Wendy for joining us here at Short Black. And I'm glad you read the news. Thank you. 
You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.